Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today I'm talking, talking with Dr. Mani Sharp about late colonial French cinema, filming the Algerian War of Independence out in 2023 with Edinburgh University Press. Dr. Sharp is a lecturer in film studies at the University of Leeds. He previously taught film studies at Newcastle University and La Sorbonne, Peritois. Dr. Sharp's area of expertise include war and uh, cinema, film studies, violence and visuality, decolonization, contemporary film theory, French cinema, the French New Wave, cultural studies, defacement, and the politics of the close-up. Dr. Sharp earned his BA and MA at Leeds and his PhD at Newcastle University. Late Colonial French Cinema, Filming the Algerian War of Independence, is his first book. Uh, so, chapeau, sir. Um, and um, welcome to the podcast, um, Dr. Mani Sharp. Um, Mani, if I may. You can, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, my pleasure. And um, I I mean, I, we were just chatting before the podcast. I, I saw you, I think I saw you tweet about this book, and I was so excited. I sent you a pick me, pick me tweet, because I really wanted to <laughs> get into this. I mean, as a as a scholar of the French Empire who's sort of dabbled in Algeria and film, like this was really fun and exciting to read. I mean, fun. It's it's a book about like horrifying subjects, but intellectually, um, it was an absolute, uh, absolute pleasure. Um, Thank you. But before we get into the book, late colonial um French cinema, filming the Algerian War of Independence. Maybe the last time I'll do the full full title. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, how did you come to both your interests uh, in film and also in this period of French history, the late 50s and the early 1960s? Um, you know, first film, uh, what drew you to film studies? Yeah, so um, I actually studied uh, French at, at, at university as an undergrad. So uh, that was from 2004 to 2008. And it's only really quite recently that I've started pushing towards film studies. So maybe over the past five years or so. Um, so I'm still kind of learning about the domain, really. Um, but for me, there's a kind of a a methodological parallel between uh, French studies and film theory, at least, in the sense that they are kind of both theoretical, not necessarily empirical, um, and uh, both uh, kind of often creative. So I, I don't consider myself as a as a historian. You know, I think there's a lot of good work being done in that domain, inclu including your own. 
but um, you know, I, I really tried to create theories or arguments that are um, kind of speculative, often slightly ambiguous, sometimes contentious, but I would never want my arguments to be considered as kind of objective facts. So hopefully that that kind of came through in the book. Um, and it's a quite an important point for anyone reading it. Um, hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's definitely uh, part of a conversation. And I really... Um... I, you know, as someone who teaches graduate students and sometimes has to teach books with a chunk of theory, um, there's different ways of doing theory. And, and many times my graduate students get frustrated and they're like, they're using jargon at shorthand. It's like, well, you walked into a conversation. You're like um, like Donnie in The Big Lebowski, right? You know, he keeps butting into the conversation, doesn't know quite what's going on. Like you, you need to get caught up. And, and some authors are better at that than others. Mm -hmm. I thought this was fantastic because you really acknowledge like, hey, here are a couple of these theorists that um, are making these contributions. Here's my contribution. And you also point out some of the ambiguities in mm -hmm. um, not just the film, uh, but in some of the other theories, but also in, in kind of what you're teasing out. So I thought sure. that was great. Thank you. So, okay, so not a historian, but but plays well with historians. Um, so <laughs> yeah. what, what drew you to this historical period of, um, it's the, uh, uh, I guess it would be the late uh, Fourth Republic and the early Fifth Republic, 1950s and 1960s France? Sure. Uh, so, I mean, I had a really good tutor uh, when I was based at the University of Leeds, so in, in the late 2000s, called Nina Wardleworth. Um, she's still there, actually, and she... Well, I was enrolled on a module called Representing Empire. Um, and as the name suggests, it was about colonial culture, you know, the apotheosis of colonial culture during the 1930s. And it was a, a module about um, many different media, you know, photography, literature, poetry, and film. I think we studied Pepe de Mucco on that on that course. So I was really, really inspired by that module in particular. Um, and I think that really set me off um, thinking about the tension between colonial culture and post-colonial culture. So that's something that I really dealt with in my PhD, which, a, which was a comparative study between what I then called post-colonial cinema, um, so French and Algerian. Um, and after the PhD, I kind of started to emphasize the French side of things more. Um, so to put it slightly violently, cut out the Algerian side of things. Um, and that is really what the book is based upon. Um, it's how French films represented the demise of colonialism in Algeria and the, um, you know, the start of this war um, from, from a, a kind of a Franco-centric perspective. So I, I know quite a lot about kind of French colonial culture um, and also kind of post-colonial theory and post-colonial questions. But what I really wanted to do in this book is to kind of get into the, the nitty gritty of, of how French films represented these two events. So the end of colonialism uh, and the war taking place in, in Algeria. Right. And, um, it, I mean, also for what you're looking at, both and and this this, I, I gotta, <laughs> I'll be fully honest here. Like, a kind of light went on in my head. Like, how fascinating is it that you have this 
major development in history of film with the French New Wave occurring at the same time as, um, uh, you know, the most sort of horrific chapter of French decolonization. And I had, you know, I, I, <laughs> it's a little embarrassing because Kristen Ross was one of the readers of my dissertation decades ago. Um, but I hadn't like, for some reason, I, I, the, that connection between film, the history of film and um, the Algerian war was it's sort of there, but like, I guess in a very inarticulate way, what I'm trying to say is I thought it was fantastic the way you show that linkage between the two and these, these film innovations going on as, as France was going through this dramatic transformation. Um, Ala Kristen Ross and and Todd Shepard and so forth that you reference. Um, before we get into um, one more time, late French, uh, late colonial French cinema filming the Algerian War for Independence, this book is composed of seven chapters, um, each of which um, are devoted to two or three films with references to some others. But really, at each each chapter is a core, two or three films. And then the, the chapters are divided into sections first on soldiers and then a section called others. Um, and we'll run through the um, e the argument of each chapter. But could you give us uh, sort of the, the overall argument, you know, maybe the, the elevator pitch um, of how, how you explain this book to uh, to someone? Yeah, and I think that's a, a really interesting word, actually, the word argument, because I was really conscious whilst writing this book that I wanted to make an argument. You know, some authors don't necessarily do that. Um, someone like Guy Austin in his wonderful book, Algerian National Cinema, he doesn't really make an argument about the corpus he analyzes. He basically just says it's 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 rich or it's complex. Um, so I'm aware that the argument that I broadly make in this book could be conceived as contentious, but I really wanted to push it. So I'm glad that you used that word or you picked up on, on, on that word, the argument. Um, so I suppose that the, the question I really respond to in this book is what do French films released during this period, so the 1950s and 1960s, early 1960s, um, how do they represent the war? That's that's really what I wanted to answer. Um, so I suppose I, I kind of respond to that question in two ways. So on the one hand, I suggest that late colonial French films represent the war um, in negative terms, so as a source of pain or anxiety. And partly, well, part of the reason for that is because it was a contentious war, it involved the loss of life um, and the loss of, you know, uh, one of the jewels in, 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 France's, is in France's empire. So what we find, therefore, is a kind of a, a trope of pacifism in many of the films. Um, and that's something that hopefully you can see in each of the chapters. Um, how do the films um, criticize the war um, in, in that respect? So pacifism is one trope um, that we see in the films. However, there's also another trope that I argue we see, and that is the trope of redemption. And what I suggest essentially in, in each chapter is that um, in the same way as French films criticise the war, they also represent French citizens as either innocent or absolved um, of the atrocities being perpetrated in Algeria. So this is um, probably one of the most kind of complex and contentious parts of the book. Um, you know, how essentially... 
films French uh, films frame uh, French citizens as kind of innocent victims rather than guilty perpetrators. So those two tropes, passivism and redemption, that's what I argue we see in in almost each film, um, and I kind of combine them together in the book. Um, and talked about how they form a kind of a discourse of redemptive pacifism. So that's that's the overall or the overarching argument of the book. How does that redemptive pacifism work? Yeah. And that's that's something that really no one said. So I suppose that's yeah, the kind yeah. of the, the USP of the book. No, and I, and I found it um, very, very thought-provoking just um, thinking back on what I know about French culture in this time period and that really that sense of the the average French citizen and and particularly young French men um, drafted um, who served in Algeria being victimized by history and then of course there's these you know there's these interesting callbacks to the Nazi occupation and collaboration and Vichy and and those two are so interlinked um, in in the film but also in and in so in the films you look at, and also in, in so many other ways in this history, so I, I I found that just just really again thought provoking and, and eye opening. Um, also for you know for listeners who are not as familiar with the history of the Algerian War, um, I, I, when I teach decolonization, I often hold it up as sort of worst case scenario decolonization. I mean it's a it's a settler colony where about what roughly ten percent of um, what is Algeria today is. Uh, French citizens, European French citizens, Pied Noir, uh, not necessarily French. Many of them are Italian and Maltese and Spanish, but that's a a, a, a rabbit hole we don't need to go down to. And um, <laughs> in you know, in settler col- settler colonialism, they've been there for generations. They they viewed this as their home. The the coastal Algeria was legally um, France. They were three départements. Um, I, I teach my students in the United States. This is comparable to um, Hawaii or Alaska overseas um territories they're not part of contingents uh, con- um, uh continental france part of the hexagon uh, full disclosure i'm a, i'm a haole from hawaii <laughs> so when i read Camus, there's a certain moment where i'm like ah yeah i mean i i i i, I understand that and like you know <laughs> thank god hawaii didn't go in in quite that direction um but um you know in, in terms of my haole identity and relationship with wine um sovereignty movements it's uh it the algeria case is very very uh enlightening um and then the so the the settler population obviously doesn't want to give up their land doesn't want to give up their rights um the 90 percent of the population are arab and, and berber um it's a smaller algerian jewish population who are for the most part politically disenfranchised lost control of the land um supply very cheap labor or things like uh, uh, wine vineyards, which are, of course, anathema to, to Muslims, right? And um, uh, the uh, the Pied Noir refusing to give up, uh, give any political um, reforms to the to the to the Algerian population, uh, eventually leads to the outbreak of uh, first major fighting in what May eighth, nineteen forty five, at Satif, and then. Open war on November first, nineteen fifty four. Um, it's guerrilla warfare, uh, primarily rural, but with a few very famous urban moments. Um, and very quickly, the French state turns to brutal counterinsurgency, including systematic use of torture, 
and the FLN um, doing weapons of the week um, turns to uh, what we would can generically label as terrorism. And um, there's these massacres and counter massacres, right? And it's just absolutely just, just, I mean, just awful. Um, uh, anyway, just, uh, sorry. I, I just, I, I, I hijacked the conversation, but I just wanted to get that quick um, uh, historical context in there for, for anybody who's not as familiar and the the war drag starts in 1954, um, uh, drags on until 1962. Um, you, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you call 1957 a real turning point. Um, could you say a few words about that? Yeah, and 1957 is really when um, there were a number of. Um, kind of confessionals uh, written or pu published um, in several kind of journals or um, newspapers at the time. Um, and I mean, this is often called uh, the turn against silence. Um, so um, someone like James de la Sueur talks about how this, this, this moment in the war led to a kind of a, a, a different form of discourse, more focused on um, atrocities, but notably that didn't always involve um, identifying soldiers as complicit in those atrocities. So I, I actually, one of the points I make in the introduction to the book, to the book is that that, that moment uh, really kind of crystallizes this discourse of redemptive pacifism um, because there were lots of people talking about how bad the war was, but they weren't necessarily saying that soldiers were culpable of atrocities. Um, so I suppose that, yeah, it's an interesting point um, in the war, certainly. Yeah, it sort of breaks into the headlines, but again, there's this this ambiguity, and there there is, history is being acted upon them. They're not. Sure. They're not. You know, it's it's we're not quite there with the full exposés on the waterboarding and the electrocution and just the really horrific treatment, right? Sure. You, I mean, you also get, um, I'm just thinking about your own work, um, the emergence of a kind of a, recur a recurring metaphor, which is of colonial, colonial sickness during that period, the late um, uh, 1950s. Emma Kuby has talked a lot about this, you know, thinking about certain words like gangrene, um, or even a, a kind of a cancer that is ravaging the the body politic, um, and you find that that metaphor in certain films like um, Clearer from Five to Seven. You find that by Agnes Valda. Um, so, I mean, well, e even recent um, academic works like um, Benjamin Storer's. I think it's called gangrene and forgetting reference that that shift towards a kind of a, a medical um, metaphor. So I thought, yeah, that was a really nice bridge between my work and yours. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in, I want to ask you about the terminology you use. So um, uh, you essentially, I don't know, do you coin this term late colonial French cinema? I mean, it's 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 you, you explain your use of it. I mean, what what kind of work does this term do? I mean, what do you mean by late colonial French cinema? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, for many years, I kind of struggled with the terminology um, and how to define the corpus that I was examining. Um, I think initially I called it uh, post-colonial cinema uh, because that's just such a, a such a common term. But actually... I 
eventually realized that that probably wasn't right in the sense that you know these were films made during the end of colonialism not specifically after it um i then toyed with calling the corpus decolonial cinema um someone like hannah feldman has used that term in her in her wonderful book from a nation torn but then uh Obviously, very recently, we've had a kind of a decolonial turn in the humanities, certainly in, in, in England. Um, and that word decolonial has kind of accrued certain certain meanings. It, it you know. does. It does something else right now, which is really important work that I'm such an ally with. On the other hand, as someone who like teaches this little literal history, it's really confused my lectures on decolonization. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, Absolutely. It's, it, it, in, in, a, in a good way, in a good way. Uh -huh. These are these are moments of, of you know, uh, moments for intellectual growth, but it's it, it gets the term decolonization gets used so much in department meetings now, and it's not what I've been lecturing on for years, but so yeah, that could be, that could be confusing right now. Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. And, and then, I mean, for me, the term decolonial is often used all, almost synonymously with anti-colonial, which is another word that I toyed with and then realized that actually, um, very few French films made during this period are explicitly anti-colonial. You know, you have um, Statues Also Die, which is by um, Anna René and Chris Marker, which is very much anti-colonial. Muriel, which is a, a film that I touch upon right at the beginning, is to some extent. But actually, once you get into the bigger picture, you know, most of the films are anti-war rather than anti-colonial. So I think it's, it's almost a kind of a pitfall there to call, to call them anti-colonial, whereas actually that's not what they're doing. They're not specifically um, uh, criticizing colonialism at all. So I, I, I really, really toyed with many, many words whilst writing um, during the writing process. I mean, it's worth also pointing out that many scholars um, refer to these films using the word new wave, the French new wave. That's that's really the go-to word. But again, I think that's actually quite problematic. And this, this relates back to a point you made right, right at the beginning of this talk in the sense that that term, the new wave, is obviously associated kind of semantically with novelty, with modernity, with a kind of a, a cultural liberation, uh, with modernization, whereas actually these films, they might be about that, but they're also drawing from colonial stereotypes and colonial traditions and colonial antecedents. So actually to call them new wave films without really thinking about it is misleading. Uh, so it's almost like a kind of a mask, you know, the term new wave, it masks the 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 genealogy of these films. You know, this is this is kind of what Kristen Ross suggests in a way about um contemporaneous domestic culture, how it masks the, um, the long history of colonialism. But I think that word, the French New Wave, performs a, a similar um, function. So... Yeah, I, 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 you know, I completely agree with you on that. And I think that's what I was trying to get at a little earlier in, in a very inarticulate way. It's like, yeah, it, it separates it out and it, and it, it, it identifies it as this art, artistic moment, important moment in film history and the historical context of that gets lost. Well, what's going on in France? Uh, and and in in France's empire, so absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I, I think I could have made that point a little bit uh, more forcefully in the book. Um, I, you know, I, I finished it, let's say, like two years ago now. So certainly more recently, I've been thinking about how I, can re- how I could have revised it. <laughs> Let, but I mean, let's read the Scalier, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, th- there's also another reason that I chose the term late colonial in the sense that it doesn't designate a political position. So either left wing or right wing. And actually, in the book, I talk about films that are both of those things so I wanted it to be kind of elastic and obviously it's more about kind of temporality late colonial than it is about a political perspective um or or a a kind of a political value so uh, yeah it just seemed to kind of fit um best this term late colonial I know that I think it's Rosalind Galt has talked has talked about um I think it might be Vietnamese uh, films uh, very recently using that term, but obviously she's talking about films that are made from a slightly different perspective, um, films that are kind of anti-colonial, whereas mine, as I've just said, aren't necessarily that. So I, I do think it's a, a kind of a a supple term, late colonial, and could be used in in, in even more contexts. Right, right. And so you've you've already mentioned uh, Chris and Ross's, um, I think, paradigm setting, uh, Fast Cars, Clean Bodies. Um, Who are some of the other theoretical influences on your work? Um, I was delighted to see some some familiar friends and names, uh, Todd Shepard and Ella Shoha. And and just, I mean, it it was, was, again, I don't work in this area, but I've, you know, read in this area and it was so much fun seeing some of these people. So who who are are some of the the big thinkers before we get into the, the chapters? Sure. I mean, I, I suppose that this book, book really draws from three moth- methodologies. So firstly, post-colonial studies. So, uh, you know, Franz Fanon, he's in there. Ella Shohart, you know, more recently. Um, also someone like Elizabeth Ezra, who has written a brilliant book. I think it's called uh, The Colonial Unconscious. Um, I also draw from film studies. So someone like Michel Chion talks about um, the kind of the poetics of the voice. And I I certainly use him towards the end of the book, um, which is probably more medium specific than the start of the book. And what I mean by that is that I talk a lot about audiovisual relations at the end. Um, also I use, yeah, I, I felt like I was in film studies in, uh, <laughs> maybe I don't know, it was chapter six. I mean, it was yeah. when you're talking the narrations where it was fascinating, but it was like, That's okay, right. here we are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also someone like Bill Nichols has talked a lot about that documentary studies, which is again, quite medium specific as a, um, a domain. Um, and then, uh, so war cinema studies. So someone like James Chapman or Frank Wetter, um, so those three methodologies I all draw, I all draw from. I mean, but also this is a book that's very much based in cultural studies. You know how do films reflect history, um, and how are films imbricated in questions of power and representation, the politics of representation. You know, the, the very fact that I talk about gender th- almost throughout um, is, is is really something that aligns the book with cultural studies. But again, just to go back to your point about Kristen Ross, who I absolutely adore. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, I think the reason, again, that I, I love her work so much is because, well, maybe two reasons. So firstly, you know, her work is is kind of quite contentious, you know, that whole question of how um, contemporaneous discourses mask 
a reality, you know, that, that's clearly associated with kind of studies of ideology. It's almost a neo-Marxist approach, but also the fact that she she kind of creates juxtapositions, almost surrealist juxtapositions in her work between like, let's say, cleanliness and atrocity. Um, and that's something that I kind of try to do in my own work. You know, in the second chapter, I talk about stardom and atrocity. So I really like what, what she does. So I, I kind of tried to emulate that. Um, I mean, apart from her, um, Guy Austin, who was my PhD supervisor, I mean, he is just unbelievable. His 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 book, Algerian National Cinema, is, I think is a masterpiece. Um, Matthew Crooms is another brilliant scholar working in the domain. Uh, Maria Flood, uh, Nicole Wallenbrock, who works at, in New York, they've all written on um, on on similar questions. I, I mean, also there's one <laughs> one scholar that I was constantly battling against, and that was Benjamin Storer. Yeah, yeah. Now, Benjamin's, uh, yeah. I, oh, go, I, on, I, go on, go on, because I, well, I, I I enjoyed that the, the the sort of back and forth there. But sure. Well, I, what I would say about Benjamin Storer is that I, I think his work was groundbreaking but he also drew heavily from joseph daniel's 1972 book war and cinema so actually if you compare those two books you see many many parallels and i i actually think that well how can i put it he, he took a lot from joseph daniel and and, and often story is much more credited than daniel is so I think that, you know, uh, Story is an amazing scholar um, and many of his theories about kind of silence and absence have become almost theoretical paradigms. But I also think that um, he probably hadn't seen many of the films that he was studying. And I'm thinking here about something like The Return. That's a film that I talk about. I think it's in chapter um, five when I talk about uh, female French citizens. Um, but there's others too. Um, because, I mean, many of these films, the films that I study have been kind of locked away in some archives. So I, I have a sneaky suspicion that he's simply listing films that he's read about, not necessarily seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so part one is entitled Soldiers. And uh, the first chapter is Conscripts, Reservists, excuse me, Conscripts and Reservists, Privatization and Redemption. And um, this, I, th I found this a really surprising chapter because you got you get into this urban history of Paris, which I, I, I wasn't expecting. So, what, what are, you, what uh, themes are you exploring and engaging in this chapter? Yeah, so I'm glad that you enjoyed it, and I think it again, just to come back to that point about kind of juxtapositions. This is definitely a, a, again a, a kind of a, a chapter based on that. Um, the juxtaposition between the home as haven, which is something I talk about a lot in this chapter, and how films such as um, so Adia Philippine and Robert Enrico's La Belle Ville, uh, Belle Vie, kind of frame the uh, the modern. Um, modernized home as a kind of a a space in which soldiers can return to and absolve themselves in. So this is this is quite a contentious argument. And again, you know, I, I kind of begin this chapter with a almost a kind of a summary of of, of Kristen Ross's thoughts and and, and it, was, it, was, she... it was it was very resonating with fast cars, clean bodies, and oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, but this was a kind of a conscious decision to set up each chapter with a an almost a kind of a conceptual summary. I wanted really to start with an argument in each chapter and to build from that argument. 
Um, so, I mean, I could have done it differently and started with an event, but because I was pushing almost away from history towards cultural history, I really wanted it to be more theoretical than that and more conceptual than that. Um, so I talk, yeah, I talk a lot in this chapter about kind of kitchens and bedrooms and beds, how, <laughs> white, how sheets. Beds are used, <laughs> white sheets and how, you know, the kind of the, the objects, uh, the consumerist durables that populate what was the modern home are used in these films. And this is, this is kind of a, um, a theme that, you know, harks back to studies of everyday life, you know, written about by Henri Lefebvre in the 1950s or Roland Barthes, you know. So, yeah, it's it's about domestic space and it's about how soldiers kind of interact with that space. Um, and, you know, both of these, these films can kind of be described as kind of home front dramas, you know, they're much more about the home and the home front than they are about Algeria or French Algeria, I should say. You know, we don't really see much images of war in these films, apart from right at the beginning of the Ben V when we have a little bit of a doc documentary footage. But it's more about, yeah, the, the kind of the the home is haven and how that functions in both films. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah um i i was i was really struck by that like how how much of what's being worked out about uh about this war in algeria is being worked out in paris and and worked out in in domestic space and 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 as paris is going through this major transformation um that you allude to you know the um uh Andre Malraux's um, was it the Law of the Seven Monuments mm. or something? Right, that's this, right. Yeah, this this, this um, uh, it's it's, it's this um, what to, what what to call it? Um, sort of early Fifth Republic transformation of Paris. I mean, uh, another form of modernization. Anyway, um, the next chapter also I th I thought did a brilliant job of these juxtapositions. Um, and it's um, stardom, atrocity, and the beauty of violence. And what's your argument here about actors? No, not actors. Stars, right? These are stars, such as Alain Delon, the you know the great uh, Alain Delon, and the aestheticization of violence. Um, um, I, you know, you, you focus on um, Alain Cavalier's Ansumi and um, Mark Robinson's Le Centurion, which is a film action pretty well, um, which is um, in English, uh, Le Centurion is, is The Lost Command, right? And it's uh, uh, Canadian, it, was it was it shot in English or in French? 
That's a good question. I'm not sure, actually. I have to go back to it. It's, I mean, I wrote that chat probably about four years ago. I can't remember. Because it, um, it's got an international cast of both Anglophones and Francophones. Sure. Um, Absolutely. It's interesting. Maybe, maybe yeah, I'd be curious what they, how they did that. But anyway, so what, what, did, what did these films tell us about stardom and, uh, and depictions of violence? Yeah, it's a, another really good question. I suppose that um, what I would say before kind of answering that is that stardom as a, a methodology isn't often used to talk about this war. So again, uh, I'm really yeah happy you're picking up on this kind of this methodological juxtaposition that is um, contained with, within this chapter. But I suppose that <laughs> what I kind of suggest in this in this chapter is that these two films. So you've got it's Lansumi, which is the unvanquished in English, which is uh, by Cavalier, and then you've got Lost Command. What they do is kind of strike a bit of a balance between kind of violence, so using violence to um, convey a pacifist message, but also what they do is kind of represent the characters in quite an idealised fashion. So in this chapter, I talk a lot about Alan Delon's face um, and how his kind of profile uh, functions to kind of neutralize the uh, the violence performed by his body. I mean, I am aware. I'm aware that this is quite this is quite a a, a, a peculiar argument, and you know that that that's kind of deliberate. Uh, I really wanted to kind of think creatively here. Um, in terms of Lost Command, um, I focus more on the the ways in which um the body is framed and the landscape is framed so again I, I draw really from war cinema studies here thinking about the aestheticization of violence and how um violence is kind of framed in kind of quite beautiful terms through pyrotechnics or acrobatics um i mean it's also worth pointing out that in neither film are the uh, soldiers framed as directly complicit in atrocity and that's again you know relate back to this question of redemption um and how french french soldiers are kind of framed as absolved or innocent from kind of complicity in crimes so yeah hopefully that that kind of explains my thinking uh, yeah, no, in, <laughs> in in sort of riffing off the stardom theme that these both these films also draw from major cinematic tropes or genres i mean that, that to me is uh, about this is the one about the the oas conspiracy this is the um for the the non experts here this is a a secret group of right-wing french officers who formed a terrorist organization to terrorize de gaulle uh, into keeping uh, Algeria French, and they they terrorized the Pied Noir into staying there. So it's like this extreme right wing terrorist organization, um, and uh, but it's 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 all very film noir, right? And then Absolutely. the the Lost Command. I mean, um, uh, you know, politically is an abhorrent film, but in terms, I, I think I saw it as a kid. I think I saw it on television as a kid, and it's a, it's a great sixties era war film. Like it, it, it keeps the, the, you know, the 12 year old boy totally engaged. It is a, it is a, you know, big, um, uh, you know, beautiful colors, incredible performances. Is it Anthony Quinn? That's right. You, you Absolutely. Lead as That's right. Yeah. The, the Basque officer. And, and it's, I mean, it's just a, 
it's a spectacle, but they're they're both very much tied to these classic genres. Um, 100%, 100%, yeah. And I, I think you're right there. You know, that film in particular, Lost Command, really draws from tropes associated with the World War II combat film, you know, something like Batan, you know, and um, John Wayne. So, um, you know, many of the kind of the panoramic wide shots that we see in that film, you know, direct are directly taken from that tradition. Um, I mean, in terms of the OAS, I, I find that organization fascinating. And um, I think maybe I should have written a little bit more about that in this book. Again, that's me kind of, uh, you know, thinking about how I would have improved it. But um, what I would say as well is that Alain Cavalier also made a really amazing film. I think it was after this or perhaps directly before called The Fight on the Island. Um, and that is about um, an OAS plot gone wrong. Um, so you find enormous obsession with the OAS in his films, you know, and in both of them, the OAS is kind of represented in slightly romanticized terms, you know, uh, not necessarily beautiful, but almost kind of a seductive, let's say. Um, so Cavalier has often been, you know, kind of criticized for, for that, 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 that seductive portrayal of fascism you know it's a really interesting kind of question uh, because in interviews he says oh no i'm left wing but actually his films are kind of obsessed with with right wing organizations and they're framed in 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 quite a a, a kind of a a sublimated way let's say mm-hmm. so that's that's yeah. a really interesting yeah, it's, point it's, it's, is that sort of romanticization of the of the mafia of the gangster yeah. and in other genres and you really see that Exactly. Um, uh, you know, chapter three militarized masculinity and its losses. And in my notes, I said, well, this gets into sex and gender. I mean, it gets into sex. Gender is throughout this book. Um, you know, throughout the book, you're just you're uh, directly engaging issues around masculinity and how they're presented in the film, and also like in some of the um, uh, the films set in in Paris, um, uh, contrasting the masculine soldier with um the female home front which you talk about in, in a later chapter but this gets in in specifically into sex and sexual practice and and uh more overtly sexual images so what 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 are the films you use here and what sort of conclusions do you tease out of this section yeah so that's a really good question so i suppose um i talk about two films here so one of which is by Jacques Dupont. Um, so in French, it's Les Distractions, in English, Trapped by Fear. Um, and the other film um, is by Louis Malle, so it's Le Faux-Follet. It's usually not translated. Um, by the way, so, that's, a, that's a delightful translation from Les Distractions to Trapped by Fear. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But that's, it's interesting, actually, because that, that, that title is really a reflection of... The central protagonist, who is a wounded paratrooper, um, a psychologically wounded paratrooper who returns from war, kind of destabilized, disorientated. And that's really what both of the films are about. Um, they're about wounded veterans um, and kind of military suffering. So, again, you have this kind of this discourse of uh, redemptive pacifism playing out because in both films, you know, the protagonists, the veterans are kind of scarred by war, but at the same time, they're represented as the ultimate 
casualties of it and certainly not they're not represented as perpetrators um so i think that you know this chapter is one in which we really find that discourse quite ex well not explicitly but certainly quite directly um it's also worth pointing out that both films um feature images of castration um, and what I mean by that is kind of emasculation. So in Trapped by Fear, you have this paratrooper, he's called Laurent, and he's just completely emasculated by women once he returns to Paris. And then in Le Fofollet, you have a really, really odd subtext regarding impotence. I mean, this is a film that is often kind of framed as this new wave, you know, kind of uh, arrogant, you know, and actually it's pretty dark, you know, it's it's really about um, sexual inadequacies um, and, you know, how the, the this this character, this veteran is unable to perform sex. So it's, it's a very, very dark film. I mean, they're both very dark, but, you know, we have this this subtext of wounding in both and actually both of them. Um, culminate in an act of suicide so you know you have these psychically wounded soldiers absolutely not culpable of anything and then you have this ultimate scene of suffering at the end which in my opinion really kind of raises them to a kind of a, a state of transcendental suffering you know they're absolutely the primary casualties of the war no mention of Algerian suffering, no uh, mention of the victims of torture, you know, in Algeria, um, you know, what we have are soldiers who are suffering. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was really powerful. And again, yeah, the, the, that trope of castration and um, uh, impotence um, as, as, you know, it, it resonates so much with, you know, uh, stories of, uh, veterans tell about losing losing the war and and it tied into sexuality i mean i think i want to ask you later on about american films in vietnam uh briefly but it, it, it's like all sorts there's of bells bit, are going off in my there's mind there's a lot to be said yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. um part two is others so the first part's focused on french french soldiers white white french soldiers um and now you shift to those who refuse to fight to french women uh, to Pied Noir settlers, the um, the the Europeans um, or French citizens in Algeria, to Algerians, and to the French left. Um, the first chapter is ex resistance, conscientious objectors, and the ethics of memory. Um, tell tell us about it. Yeah. So. <laughs> This chapter really killed me. It absolutely <laughs> broke me. I spent so many years trying to write it. And, uh, I, you know, if you're asking me to tell you about it, then I'll, I'll say that, that it, I mean, it was just hell to write. Um, it was initially about... This, this was your war. It was my war, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it was initially about allegory. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about how um, it is... Uh, the denunciation uh, by Jacques Daniel Valprose, how that functions allegorically, and uh, uh, somewhere along the, along the line, I just kind of gave up on that because allegory, I realised, is just a horribly complicated 
kind of device um so if you if you look online you're actually you can find the very early version of this um this chapter published in a journal and it's just completely different because i i really was struggling with it more than anything else um so i suppose well what is this chapter about so it's obviously about memory it's also about um how flashbacks function in both of the films so someone like maureen turin is a kind of a film scholar um, and she's written a lot about that so both of these films kind of feature flashbacks um, but they also again kind of represent French female citizens as, as, as kind of victimized um, you can see that in the denunciation um, where we have a an ex-resistant who is tortured by the Nazis and I, and I talk about this scene quite a bit in in the chapter and how we can read it on one hand as a kind of an allegory that points towards the suffering of Algerians so perhaps we can read it in that way as it as a kind of an oblique gesture towards Algerian suffering and then I and then I go the other way and read it in another direction or a, a kind of according to another interpretation you know uh, in relation to how it again relates to this discourse of Franco-centric victim victimization. So I suppose this again, this is um a chapter about kind of victimization, about um the ethics of memory. Um and Thou Shall Not Kill, which is by Claude Auton Lara, is 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 a fascinating film. It's the only one I think in the book that features a pacifist. So again, this relates back to this discourse of redemptive pacifism. Um, but because the main character is a pacifist, you know, we do not get any kind of indication of French guilt. You know, he's absorbed, he's completely absorbed. He ends the film as this kind of transcendental pacifist hero. So actually, as a representation of historical reality, you know, well, this this film does not represent reality. Actually, um, during the war itself, very few um, French soldiers became conscientious objectors, certainly compared to, to, to Vietnam. So it almost mythologizes um, the history of anti-militarism and pacifism. So again, I think that, yeah, that, that, that film in particular is, is, is a good indication of this discourse of redemptive pacifism. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember as I was reading that chapter the other night, I was, I was thinking, I, I, don't know much about French conscientious objectors. Was that was that even a thing? I mean, yeah, and I, and exactly. I, and I guess that's uh, exactly. that, that, that's correct. Yeah, I should um, I should also say that yeah. I've I've just uploaded um, that that film to YouTube, so it's I think it's available there um, oh. to, to view. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with, and, and with it, was, it was uh, Thou shalt not kill. Yeah. And uh, what was the French title? Uh, ne tue uh nature uh, i can't remember what it is actually uh, i can't i can't remember okay, okay. i can't remember sorry okay. yeah <laughs> no problem um let's see so chapter five uh returns to again more explicit uh gendering of your analysis um what do you argue in female citizens and guilt displacement and which films illustrate your points here Sure. So, I mean, this is the chapter that really kind of breaks my argument. Um, and that was a deliberate decision again. But uh, essentially what I argue in this chapter is that in 
at least three of the films released during this period, so these late uh, colonial French films, we find French female citizens who are represented as guilty. Um, now, sometimes this guilt is emotional, and what I mean by that is that they're represented as kind of duplicious or, emo or emotionally abusive, um, but sometimes this guilt is kind of obliquely linked to the politics of the war. So in something like Postal Sector, which is by Philip Durand, um, released in 1961, we find essentially an attempt to displace the guilt um, or the responsibility um, for atrocities committed in, in French Algeria onto the bodies of French female citizens. Now, how the film does that is is, is quite complicated, and you'll you'll have to read the yeah the book yeah, to I, find I, out. I, I, I thought I found your just your discussion, your description of what the film does, just absolutely fascinating. I haven't seen it, and I'm 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 gonna uh, try and um is is this readily available? It's it's partly available. It's available online at the moment. But you need a university university status to access it. Um, but you, I, you just your description of the themes that it's working with and the and the technique just sound absolutely fascinating. And, it's, and this this is the film with the love letters, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. love letters between uh, a a soldier and um, his uh, his his girl, his woman at home, and um, but it's all it's 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 mostly scenes of her wandering around Paris. That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And what we have is a kind of a a very, very vague voiceover provided by a soldier um, that is potentially based on letters. So it's a kind of a, a film, it's, it's a film that deals with letter writing or it draws from letter writing. Um, but clearly this is an audiovisual medium, so it kind of uses cinema or cinematic techniques to transpose that 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 act of letter letter writing. Um, so we have a soldier who kind of speaks letters, they're spoken letters, and those letters are kind of spoken onto the body of his of his sweetheart. Um, so it's a very, very odd film. I think that this is probably my favourite film in the, in the entire book. When I was watching it and, and kind of analysing it, I just thought this is absolutely genius. Um, it's a kind of a, a film that is drawing from what might be called late modernist traditions in European art cinema as well. Um, was this you know, one that, that drew heavily from Soviet um, montage editing? It does, and, uh, yeah. Man of the, Man of the uh, Camera. That, well, more more Eisenstein. Eisenstein, okay, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm going way, way back here. I, as, no. as an early graduate student, I um I uh, wrote the index for um Peter Kenez's uh, history of Soviet film. So mm -hmm. I've got all that stuff way back in my mind. But, <laughs> but no, you're yeah. absolutely right, and and uh yeah, hundred percent. Some of the editing patterns that we see in that film draw from. I think Eisenstein called it called it metric montage, essentially when you shorten the um, the duration of the shots to create a certain effect. Um, I mean, it also draws from a really famous um, kind of cinematic illusion called the Kuleshov effect, which is essentially when um, 
you or a director generates the impression that a a protagonist is thinking something by editing shots of their face with an object. So we find that in um, some of Eisenstein's films, but certainly in Postal Sector. Um, Philip Duran was 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 a, a film theorist, so he actually wrote about Eisenstein and taught about him as well. He was a, he was a lecturer. So Philip Duran, I think, is one of the most underappreciated directors working during the 1960s. Um, absolutely, I, I think he he was a, a genius. Um, even even if I'm quite critical of his of his film, we we can appreciate films that we have yeah. we have issues with. Absolutely, sure. um, we, we, we're mature enough here at New Books to <laughs> understand that. Um, um, actually, just I was listening to one of the Jacobin podcasts on um, um, Quentin Tarantino's. Uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, which they were extremely critical of, but were very clear about its its moments of genius as, yeah. in terms of cinema, even though they were just tearing it apart. And I, I found I found that to be just such a a great way to talk about film. I think it was the Michael Ness podcast. Anyway, yeah, that's interesting. Um, the second to last chapter is on um, the war uh, seen from Algeria by the settlers. So it's the Pied Noir perspective uh, on the war um, or sort of this late colonial setting. Um, can you tell us about these two films? Yes, yeah, so the two films that I study here are Slanted Kisses um, by two settlers, so Guy Gilles and Marc Setor, and The Olive Trees of Justice, which uh, was a co-production between an American director called James Blue and a settler author called uh, Jean Pellegris. Um, and, I mean, settler cinema is a kind of a type of cinema that hasn't really been studied that much. Um, Rebecca Weaver Hightower has written about it, but not in this context. So actually, when I was studying these two films, I was thinking, my goodness, you know, these are films that are about the war in Algeria, but that, that haven't been talked about at all, you know, in 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 scholarship certainly I, I, I didn't know that there was a pied noir cinema of, of anything i mean sure. I, I mean literature sure i mean come mm. and, and i mean <laughs> but that I, I so i found this super fascinating but go on well, it's funny that you say Camus because Slanted Kisses directly um, references Camus uh, halfway through. Um, and, you know, the, the, that, that kind of, that tendency to represent colonial Algeria as a an empty landscape. So you find that in, Cam in Camus' works, but also you find that in, at least slanted kisses you know this is a really odd film that is it's almost a kind of a collection of how can i put it just static landscapes you have uh the beach the horizon um a couple who um travel down an empty road uh, it's really a film that it kind of evacuates the the, the landscape um from the 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 native population. So I think that um, Camus is, is a big influence on, on that film in particular. Um, I, I, th I, think like... you, I think you note that there's this uh, Pierre Noir fantasy of uh, Algeria without Algerians. 
Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. And, and, and we definitely see that in slanted kisses. The olive, the olive trees of justice is a little bit different because that is set in Algiers. And it's it's almost like a kind of a, a film that blends fiction with non-fiction. So many of the shots in it essentially just frame the central protagonist um, against... Um, an urban landscape. So you have streets filled with non-actors, so some of whom would have been settlers, but others who would have been, um, you know, indigenous Algerians. So that that's a that's a, that's a film that functions slightly differently. Aren't, um, the, aren't there also some shots of his um, his family's estate, the vineyard? There is, yeah, yeah, and that that's a really good point because I mean. <laughs> We find a lot of flashbacks in this film, and certainly it's a film that kind of idealizes the past and almost um, regrets what Algeria had become. So it's about loss and it's about kind of nostalgia, but clearly that's a, a that's that's a message that is being conveyed from a settler perspective, because obviously for Algeria, the war was edging towards a gain, you know, it was edging towards the acquisition of sovereignty and territory. So well, it's, very... it's, com it's completely at odds with uh, Fanon and Year Zero, right? I mean, if there's there's yeah. a new Algeria being born. Yes, and that's exactly. the whole point. And then and there's this this melancholy sense of loss, and you know, I, and there's this conflict between the lead character and his father, who represent. Two different two different strains of colonialism, one more authoritarian, one sort of vaguely progressive, an empire of love somehow, right? But like, but this it's this again, I really love the term you, you coined for the title, late colonial, because that's the only way to categorize that film. This is this is the very end of the French Empire. And here you have these settlers who they, they don't they don't know exactly what's going to come in like a year or two. But they got a pretty good idea, and they're reflecting on their present and the past that created that. And it's this, this end of history moment, you know? Absolutely, 100%. And I think that actually this chapter is where we really see the influence of colonial culture on the two films. Uh, someone like John Zarabel has talked a lot about um, colonial landscapes, about the kind of the the panoramas that we see in in colonial landscapes, you know, made in the late 1800s. And these two films really draw from that, especially Slanted Kisses, this imperial way of looking, this kind of transcendental way of looking at the landscape, you know, from an omnipresent perspective. So I talk about that a lot. That's my central argument here. So it's 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 less about it's less about uh, ethics and it's more about kind of visuality and power. So I suppose that, yeah, this is one of the chapters that it doesn't necessarily break from my overarching argument, but it's it's less wedded to it. You conclude uh, with a chapter, um, The War as Spoken by Algerians on the Left. Um, so what films brought in the the Algerian and uh, the French left perspective to this, uh, to this history? Yeah, so another good question. And yeah, this chapter is really about two films which are kind of similar. Um, so on one hand, we have 
October in Paris, which is by Jacques Panigel. And that's about um, a massacre committed by French police. The um, October seventeenth, nineteen sixty-one. Exactly. Massacre, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that 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 documentary has been written about um, quite a bit over the last few years. Um, someone like Leah Brosgal has written a lot about it. Um, Maria Flood, Flood as well. Um, and then and it, on the it, other... fa- it factors into a detective novel, um, Murder in Memoriam. Yes, um, like the, absolutely. the old foot that old footage. But I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. Go on. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's I mean it's a fascinating film for a number of reasons. Um, but I think it's becoming more and more um well known. You know, it's it's certainly gained traction over the last couple of weeks. Um and then the other film is a short film by well, it's it's by four people really. So the film's called I Am Eight, uh, and it's by Jan Le Maison, Olga Polyakov, René Vautier, and then Franz Fanon. So it's this really interesting kind of project that um, is about young refugees who had fled from Algeria to Tunisia. Um, so, I mean, what I essentially suggest in this. Um, in this chapter is that these uh these two films kind of encapsulate a tension um between the suffering of algerians victimized by the war but also the the values of the left so they they, they're almost an attempt at redeeming the reputation of the left after it had been um accused of complicity in the perpetration of atrocities. I don't know if you know much about how the left's decisions during that period. So they made many unwise ones. So I no, mean, that's... F- fam- famously, the the French Communist Party did not throw its hat in with the FLN uh, for quite some time, right? I mean, it's exactly they're, they're supporting yeah. the colonial project against the FLN. One hundred percent, and they also voted to support. Um, special powers so that was a a kind of a piece of legislation put in place um i can't remember the exact date but it essentially led to the the widespread use of torture in 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 um in in french algeria so they were directly complicit in that shift um i mean in terms of kind of which i'm sorry to interrupt again which as as you point out is so like mind-breakingly ironic because mm-hmm. you have um uh the the far-right french generals accusing um the fln of being communist and it, it all being a part of the they're, they're trying to frame it into the cold war and uh it, it <laughs> the psf is not supporting the fln until very very late exactly yeah 100 percent. and then, and then can... the french socialists are even even worse right yeah, 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 indeed. Very, very problematic during that period. Um, but but we don't really sense that in either of the films. You know, what we have um, in October in Paris, at least, are leftist militants who are framed as innocent victims. So we have this weird shift in, in the middle of the film um, from a focus on October the 17th um, to a, a similar... Uh, massacre that took place. I think it was February 1962 at Sharon. So that was in a a metro station, in a subway station. Exactly. Yeah. It's two very different events. 
Yes. But they get, they get conflated together, right? They get conflated, absolutely. And someone like Jim House, uh, who works at Leeds, you probably know of his work, he's a historian. He's talked a lot about, you know, how that latter event kind of overshadowed October the 17th and you have a shift towards an emphasis on um, the innocence of the left. So that it's it almost... Um, absolves the left of that complicity and atrocity. Um, so uh, again, that, that that forms part of my argument about you know redemption and the ethics of the period. Um, this is also a, a chapter about the voice. Um, so how the voice is framed by both um, directors or in both films rather. And I talk a lot about masked interviews and how they function in, in October in Paris. So essentially how the film um, frames the Algerian interviewees as if they've just erupted into speech without having been posed questions. So Bill Nichols talks a lot about that. Um, in I Am Eight, we find a slightly different use of the voice. Um, we find what could be termed acousmatic testimony. So it's essentially disembodied testimony. So we never see in that film the mouth of a boy who speaks at the same time. What we have are silent faces and then a disembodied or acousmatic voice that kind of hovers over the image track and the soundtrack. So I talk a lot about how that kind of functions um, and you know how that kind of relates to, you know, kind of the agenda of the left, let's say. So it's about kind of the voice, it's about the left, it's about Algerians. And it's also, as we said at the, the start of this talk, it's about kind of audiovisual relations more specifically, because the start of the book is really about representation, how soldiers are represented. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so <laughs> as an American, <laughs> as a scholar of Vietnam, <laughs> I have to ask, um, you know, do you, I mean, I, I couldn't couldn't help but thinking about parallels between the films that you're studying and the American films uh, coming out in the um, particularly um, it's sort of mid to late seventies um, about the American War in Vietnam. I mean, do you have any comparative thoughts there? I mean, this is not the subject of your book, but like, <laughs> I can't help but ask, right, for, for no, all I... the obvious reasons. I mean, absolutely. And and clearly these two conflicts were very similar, you know, thinking about the perpetration of atrocities, kind of rape or torture, or even nalpalm, which was used in Algeria. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know... The, the figure of the helicopter as well. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. Like you, I think but, you really see that in um, <laughs> The Lost Command, Le Centurion. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it reminded me so 100%. much of the Vietnam War film. Mm. But I mean, also you find, I think, a desire, a similar desire to kind of chronicle military defeat or kind of manage the loss of uh, of a war. You know, obviously, um, Vietnam War films and late colonial French films are about the loss of colonial slash imperial power. So I think that they're, they're, they're you know, films from each period are trying to manage that loss. They're trying to deal with that loss. They're trying to chronicle it, but in a way that won't necessarily um, implicate the citizens of either France or America. 
Um, so I definitely think there's parallels there. And that, that, also... that idea of the, the victimization of the soldier, the soldiers victimized by history forces well, outside his control. Right. 100%. Yeah. And, and, and also that, some... that, that, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, that, no, but okay. that, that misogynist projection of guilt yes. onto the woman at home. Um, well, in, yeah, no, 100%. Like something like The Deer Hunter or Coming Home, which is by Hal Ashby, even Rambo First Blood. I, I think these are films that are exactly doing that, you know, representing American veterans as innocent victims of an unjust war. Um, you know, so <laughs> perhaps we have that discourse of redemptive pacifism again, you know, a bad war, but actually, you know, the soldiers aren't specifically framed as culpable in the perpetration of atrocities. Um, I, 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 I recently gave a paper at SCMS, which was in Denver this year. So that's the big kind of film studies conference. And I ended actually with that point, um, you know, and specifically about how, ra how, how Rambo first blood functions, because I think that's a, crum a criminally underrated film. Um, but it's all about, you know, the the victimization of Rambo and, you know, the ways in which he's associated with this kind of suffering. Well, um, I'll, I'll, I'll um, one up you here. I think it's a criminally ill remembered or misremembered film. 100%. What we think of is the, the the second and the third and the fourth Rambos that that cartoonish caricature. The first Rambo, I mean, I, I'm old enough. I saw I saw it in the theater. And whoa, that was there were some messages in there that were were really not quite standard war film of that time, and it's very um uh, uh I don't know, transgressive. But there's it's it's up to something. I mean, it's it's Rambo's going against the sheriff. He's going against these. You know, the the whole American system is just so corrupt in that. Even even his benefactor, the officer who saves him, right. 100%. And, he, you know, he's also both psychologically and physically wounded throughout that film. Uh, and I think there's a real tendency when you say Rambo to think of hegemonic masculinity, you know, hard body masculinity, um, which, yeah, OK, is the case in the second and the third and thereafter. But actually, that first one is, is, is you're right, is doing something different. It's more about kind of psychic wounding um psychological wounding and, and framing his him the viet vet as as a, as a suffering as a suffering casualty and so i absolutely agree that there's there's massive parallels there between my corpus and and that that te tendency or that trend in in american cinema 100 percent. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, I, again forgive me but I, <laughs> because of who i am and what i do i just i get my my mind kept going there um, 100%. So you've been really generous with your time um and i've got two more questions before we let you go before i let you go and these are the the standard uh new books debriefing questions um first can you suggest two books for the audience so they can be related to this subject or something you're just really excited about that you want everybody to read yeah, uh, so this is a great question, um, and I'm going to go with two books that are not at all related to the subject. Awesome, great, fantastic. I think that, um, well, every day I try to read something that's beyond my subject, and the two books that I've chosen are, well, firstly, Noah Stymatsky's 2017 book, The Face on Film, which is absolutely not about war, um, and is really more about avant-garde American cinema from the 60s or 50s to 60s. 
Um, and the reason I've chosen that is because I found that so refreshing because, well, I think that my book is, you know, really based in cultural studies, as I said at the start, you know, how do films represent uh, history, whereas actually Noah Stymatsky's book is really about the the specificity of the film medium. It's about different shots. It's about the politics and the poetics of the facial close-up. So it looks really, really small, whereas actually my, books, my book looks quite big. So I, I, I found that really an amazing counterpoint to, to the domain that I that I've been working in for, for many, many years. Um, there's another book that is actually quite similar in the sense that it's based really in film studies, film theory, and that's by Justin Reams. It's called Absence in Cinema, The Art of Showing Nothing, uh, released in 2020. And again, it's a book that is about really, you know, kind of audiovisual techniques. Um, so it's not necessarily about representation it's not about identity politics it's not really about power so it's definitely not drawing from cultural studies but it's very very uh specifically about what film as a medium does what it can do how it can frame something that is not there and i found that just absolutely fascinating um so yeah i i I saw actually Justin Reem speak at SCMS in Denver when I when I spoke and he was just amazing as well. So I think he's probably one of the best film scholars working working today. So if if a listener wants to look into film studies, you know, and here I'm not talking about war and I'm not even talking about representation, you know, then then read Noah Stymatsky and Justin Reem's. Um, those are my two recommendations. Fantastic, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a few liberties right now. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out two books uh, just because I'm super excited about this conversation. One that we've been referencing, but I want um, to make sure that the listeners um, definitely get the full reference for, and that's Kristen Ross's um, 1995 or 1996 uh, Fast Cars, Clean Bodies, Decolonization, and the Reordering of French Culture. Full disclosure, she was the third reader on my dissertation. I didn't work that closely with her, but I got to got to hang out with her a bit. Um, just, I think, such an amazing book and resonates with so many of the things you're talking about. And and um, I just, what really stuck with me is the the from that book over the over the decades now is the um, juxtaposition of torture and cleanliness, and um, um, just some some of the things she does there again fast cars clean bodies decolonization the reordering of france and then another book is one that um i i want you to rush out and check out and that's um my friend Catherine edwards katie edwards contesting indochina french remembrance between decolonization and cold war and that came out in 2016 and um it's just just a fantastic book um that does a number of things you're doing um but does it in my little corner of the world in uh uh, in regards to Southeast Asia, and again, I'm 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 kind of breaking the rules here, but I want to. You're a film scholar, so I want to ask you for not just two books, but two films we should check out in addition to Rambo: First Blood. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, okay. So two films. So I think I'm gonna choose one that I talk about in my book, and that is The Return by Daniel Goldenberg. Um, I should say that. <laughs> 
So whilst I was writing my book, I didn't actually have access, direct access to that film. So I had to go all the way to France to, to watch it. And I, I managed managed to somehow um, record it with, with, with my phone, but I didn't, I couldn't record the, the soundtrack. So I was actually writing about the film and analyzing it using a recording of a recording without the soundtrack. So so um that's one film um and the reason i'm 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 indicating or uh, recommending that film is because daniel goldenberg um recently provided me with a, a digital copy of it which i then um then uploaded to youtube with his approval with with subtitles now i think this is absolutely a lost masterpiece um and it's the first time in about let's say something like uh 50 years that it's really been publicly available um so i was so happy when he he provided me with that and i just think it's absolutely beautiful so so um, give us give us the we find we can find this on youtube sure. searching yeah, so searching for what's is on your do you have a channel uh i i don't have a channel per se but if you type into into youtube the return or in French, it's Le Retour. I provided both names, both titles. And then Daniel Goldenberg. It's released in 1959. You will be able to find it. Um, so that's one of the films. Um, now, the other film is really a recommendation for you, actually. Uh, you might know this one. Um, it's the third, 317th Platoon, which is, which, oh, you do know, which is by Pierre Schoendorfer, which is essentially set during the uh, the first Indochina War, um, and I I saw this film. I think it was possibly after I'd written the book, but I was really really struck by how soldiers are framed in it. Um, I mean, the director was a soldier. He's a former veteran, and actually, often people. Um, kind of frame this film as a pro-war film. Now, when I saw it, I I, I definitely didn't get this impression. Um, I, you know, it's very grim and, you know, it's really quite stark um, in its use of audiovisual techniques. You know, I think it's heavily inspired by documentary <laughs> aesthetics. There's also really, really interesting use of the military body in this film. There's a lot of shots that focus on the um the neck of soldiers um and uh, i'm really interested in how how films kind of frame the 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 kind of the uh, the anatomy of the military body so i found that just really fascinating this use of the neck in this film yeah it's shot in really gorgeous black and white that's right um, that does just so much and it's about the it's 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 about it's a it's about a platoon that's sort of doing arranging deck chairs of the Titanic in like literally the last days of the war in 1954. And they, they sort of make their way through, I think, Cambodia. So um, I, um, uh, two of my uh, friends and colleagues, um, Eric Jones and Matthew Yeagle run a podcast um, called Napalm in the Morning. And it's, it's, it's there. They're both historians of Southeast Asia and it's about, films about the American war in Vietnam. And every time they, 
they um they get into something french they bring me on as a guest host so we did a we did a special episode on um the 317th platoon um platoon that came out um i think last year yeah about a year ago um so napalm in the morning and it's a it's a bit more tongue-in-cheek um (laughs) we we mock a lot of these films but um uh, we have a pretty good discussion of that. So check out Napalm in the morning. Um, and <laughs> those, those, those guys, those two guys, they do a, they do a pretty fun job with, um, looking at these films. Okay, great. Um, and then back, back on track. Um, finally, what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next? Yeah. So, uh, two things. So I've just, uh, finished, uh, an article on the return. So that's that film that's just been, released on youtube and uh, what i would say here is that um because i finally had access to all of the film the 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 analysis that i conducted on it is 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 very different (laughs) so um yeah that's one thing that i've just finished um that should be coming out with the quarterly review of film video uh maybe next year um and yeah again about kind of letter writing returning soldiers and female french citizens um so uh that that's that's one kind of how can i put it a um a project that is obviously a continuation of the book now the other project i'm working on is um more recent and it's about the the tension between war and the face so i've just mentioned noah steimatsky's book uh the face on film so I'm using that for this new project. Um, I've just run an international conference at the University of Leeds. So that was called The War Face on Screen. Um, we had a number of speakers talking there. We had Robert Burgoyne, who is a big scholar in, 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 work, in war cinema studies. Um, so we are developing that. And what I maybe want to do is set up a, a related project called, and this is a very provisional uh, title images of defacement in anti-war art so i'm looking more at kind of war more about kind of different media um and more specifically about the body and the face so that's that's really what i plan to be doing over the next right. 10 years 10 years <laughs> okay. next 10 years of your life fantastic yeah. well um my- Manny, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Um, I I really enjoyed this conversation and I really enjoy reading your book. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Absolutely fascinating. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yep. This has been a conversation with Dr. Manny Sharp about late colonial French cinema filming the Algerian War of Independence out in 2023 with Edinburgh University Press. I'm your host, Michael Van of California State University, Sacramento. And this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.